Let me read Philippians 3, starting in verse 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is God's word. You may be seated. In this passage, and if you've been here with us, whether online or in the, in the sanctuary as we've been going through the book of Philippians, you will know that this is a familiar theme for Paul. In fact, he continues to exhort us to call us to a single-minded pursuit of Christ. In fact, perseverance is a theme that comes, over, comes up over and over again in this letter. Paul himself is persevering in prison in Rome, even rejoicing in his hardships. And so he is calling the Philippian believers and us to do the same. We are to press on, as we heard last week, we are to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. We are to stand firm in our commitment to Christ. These are the same realities that he's describing in different language. To press on is to persevere. To stand firm is to stay committed to the gospel of Christ, whatever the hardships, whatever the suffering, whatever the circumstances. And so we continue to look at this theme of perseverance, remaining faithful to Christ, even in the midst of opposition or difficulties. Now in today's passage, Paul lays out two ways to live. It's a familiar device in Scripture. We often see that Christ himself taught there are two ways to live, the narrow way and the wide way. And so here again we see Paul saying there are two ways to live. The first one is the pattern that he and other Christian leaders have modeled for the Philippians. You may remember that Paul has already told them to look to people like Timothy and Epaphroditus as models, as examples of Christian life. And he places himself in that category. There's the apostolic pattern of perseverance and faithfulness to the gospel. The second way is the way of life of those who may have professed Christ at one point and yet have fallen away. They have not persevered. They have not stood firm. They have not pressed on. And there's the negative example of those who have not stood firm in our passage here this morning. So this passage is built on contrasting these two ways. This is the easiest way, I think, to sort through these verses, is to see it as as a contrast between two ways of life, to help us see the difference and to ultimately to encourage us to continue to stand firm in the Lord. I'd like to ask three questions. So this is our outline. There are three questions that we need to ask and answer from our text. Number one, where is your home? Where is your home? 
We'll talk about the citizenship of heaven and place in your mind and your affections on earthly things. Secondly, the second question is, what makes you happy? What makes you happy? What do you think is the highest happiness is? And number three, we'll finish with this question, what is your hope? What is your hope? So let's answer these questions by working through our text together. Where is your home? I'm looking at the first contrast that's right in the middle of this section, and we kind of work ourselves, work our way out of that. You can see kind of the buildup of the negative example, and then you have but, and then the positive example, and so we'll look, start in the middle, and that's that that passage answers the question where our home is, verses 19 and 20. Okay, so those who have fallen away from Christ, Paul says, have their minds set on earthly things, verse 19, have their minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The contrast is that some of us live with our minds set on the earth, on earthly things. It's contrasted with living a life where our citizenship is in heaven, we await our Savior to come and rescue us. Now, earlier in this letter, Paul has already introduced perseverance as it's connected to this idea of citizenship in verses 27 and 28 of the first chapter of Philippians. We talked about being living worthy of the gospel, being worthy citizens of heaven. Now, if you remember when we looked at that passage, we learned that Philippi, this, this city that was in the Greek part of the world, and yet it was a Roman colony. In fact, people that would visit the town of Philippi at the time would recognize that it's laid out, it's built like Rome, and that lots of people spoke Latin and not just Greek. And the customs and the culture of that city were more Roman than Greek. Now, the reason for that is, is to remind you uh, from several months ago. The reason for that is that there was a great battle, and as a reward for the victory in that battle, many Roman soldiers, the veterans of the Roman army, were given this colony at Philippi. And so that town was essentially colonized by Roman soldiers, and so they've enforced uh, and have remained consistent with the Roman culture. In fact, that place, Philippi, was technically under the authority, directly under the authority of Rome. And so Rome would appoint leaders, Roman leaders, for that town, for that city. So they were living in the Greek culture, and yet there were Latin people. They were living in sort of this little Rome, even though it was surrounded by, by the Greek culture. So Paul is making this parallel again, as he did in chapter 1, and he's He's equating the experience of a Latin citizen, of a Roman citizen in the Greek culture at Philippi to the experience of the Christian whose citizenship is in heaven, and yet they live in the world, they live on earth. Christians are to live here in this world as citizens of another country, of another nation, which means that our culture and our customs are not really the culture and customs of this world, but they're the customs and culture of heaven. Our leadership is appointed for us from heaven and not from earth. The way we lay out our lives, the way we organize our lives is governed by another template. It's not the earthly, worldly template, 
but as the template of heaven. What Paul is really talking about here is the danger of worldliness. As James 4, verse 4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Very clear. Categorical terms. If you're a friend of the world, if you live according to the world, if you set your minds on earthly things, you are an enemy of God, James says. Paul says you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. He's warning us against the danger of worldliness. If you become worldly as a Christian, you cannot persevere, you cannot stand firm. These enemies of the cross of Christ have their minds set on earthly things. The world has become more important to them than the Lord. To put it differently, the world has become their home, their true home, the place of their citizenship, the place of their allegiance, the place of their culture, the place of their very life. Now, worldliness, if you've been around church circles, I always want to clarify this because if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard and maybe been taught and modeled that worldliness really has to do with just a number of things you can't do. It's a list of activities that are prohibited for Christians. And at different times in our history, of church history, depending on our cultural preferences and generational preferences, we have placed different things on that list, right? Sometimes dancing was on that list. Sometimes chewing gum was on that list. Sometimes playing cards was on that list, right? Movies, different things like that, as well as openly sinful things. But typically, we've defined worldliness as just don't do those things and you will not be worldly. However, if you look at Scripture, well, first of all, you don't get a list of things. You get a list of sins, but you don't get a list of practices that are outside of God's commandments that make us worldly. What you do get in Scripture is a presentation of worldliness as being a matter of love, a matter of love. Our behavior is rooted in our love. For example, 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is how John describes worldliness. He's not concerned whether you're chewing gum or playing cards, right? What is he concerned about? He is concerned whether you love the world. And if you love the world, you can't love God at the same time. Just like Paul tells us, if your mind is set on earthly things, you cannot also live as a citizen of heaven. The idea is that our heart cannot equally, it's unable to equally love God in this world. We can't set our minds on earthly things and at the same time set our minds on things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We can either assimilate and live as citizens of this world, even as it is passing away, or we can live in this world as resident aliens, as immigrants, as citizens of the heavenly country. We can either make our home in the city of man or look forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God himself. Paul says very clearly, and we really need to hear this because 
during this time of church history in the West, this is a real problem for us. The world is a real problem. Paul says you cannot persevere in the Christian life. You cannot press on towards the goal of the prize, the upward call of God in Christ. You can't stand firm if your hearts are set on earthly things, if your heart belongs to this world, if you made your home here and have forgotten that your citizenship is in heaven. Where is your home? Is your mind set on earthly things? Do you live trying to protect and preserve your rights, your freedoms, and your comforts here in this world? I'm going to push you this morning. I'm going to make you uncomfortable because this is where the battle takes place. Where is your heart? Where is your home? What do you love? Do you know that you do not belong here? That your rights, your true rights, your true privileges, your true freedoms, your true comforts are in heaven with Christ. They're not here. You're not supposed to be right here. You're not supposed to be really free here. You're certainly not supposed to be really comfortable here. Because our home isn't here. Friends, if your comforts, freedoms, and rights are in Christ, in heaven, you can't lose them. Nobody can take them from you. You don't have to defend them. You don't have to work to preserve them. Nobody can take them. Which means that it is okay. Actually, it is commanded in Scripture that we would give up our rights. We would give up our comforts. We would give up our freedoms here. Do you live like that? I mean, you know the area I'm talking about, right? Politics. How we navigate this pandemic. This is the arena where Christians are learning to navigate their life in the world and yet trying to not succumb to this world and make our home here. On the one hand, you can make your home here by simply being fearful of everything the world tells you. That's a real issue for many Christians. We become fearful, we panic that we may lose something significant to us, our lives, for example. And so you live in fear and you let the world control your thinking. You set your minds on earthly things. But the other extreme is also worldly. When we say, I will defend my rights, I will defend my comforts, I will not do what I'm told. Is there discernment involved? Absolutely. That's why we always pray for wisdom. We pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit because it's hard to figure out. But the foundation of the discernment lies in our acceptance that this is not our home. I may lose my life here, so what? I'll be going home. I will be at my true home. I win in that equation. Do you realize that that's a blessing? And, and Paul's already told us, for me to, to live as Christ, but to die is gain. But to live as Christ here in this world, meaning that my identity is with Christ, 
my preferences are with Christ, my comforts, my fears, all of that has to be filtered through my allegiance to Christ and to another kingdom. Not this one, another kingdom. Let me keep pressing. In verse 20, Paul refers to Jesus as Savior. And for us, we often call Jesus Savior. And in other parts of Scripture, Jesus is often called our Savior. But for Paul, this is very unusual. There's only one more place in his letters where he calls Jesus our Savior. That's in Ephesians 5.23. But here... I think he deliberately is using this term because this is a term that the Philippians would have immediately reacted to in the ancient world, specifically in the Roman world. This designation of Savior was often used of emperors, of rulers, of political leaders. For example, Caesar was called the Savior of the world. Augustus was called the Savior of humankind. Those Roman emperors enjoyed getting that kind of status. They didn't want to just be good human leaders. They wanted to be divine leaders. They wanted to be seen and applauded as those who came to save the world and make everything better. Establish peace that surpasses anything that came before them. And so Paul, I think deliberately, because he's always writing to Gentiles, Gentile Christians living in the Roman and Greek culture, He's, he stayed away from this term unless he really needs to use it. And here he really needs to use it because he wants to point out that some of the Philippians are looking at the emperor from a Roman colony, are looking at the emperor as their savior. And Paul is saying we have a different savior. Because we're citizens of heaven, we await from heaven a savior. There's another emperor that we pledge our allegiance to. We await the Lord Jesus to come and rescue us, to save us, to rule over us, because that's our country, that's our homeland. I think this, this use of this term is very deliberate because Paul wants to challenge the politics of Philippi. He wants to reveal that the hearts of people at Philippi are, are too attached to the Roman culture, to the Roman world, to the Roman emperor. He's challenging them to consider who their real Savior is. Because if their minds are set on earthly things, of course they would trust in the emperor, especially as a Roman colony. But if their citizenship is in heaven, they would await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. We must ask ourselves this morning, who is our Savior? Who is our Savior? If we believe that a new president will make everything better, you hear Christians talk like that. Isn't the president their savior? Or if we believe that maintaining this administration, this president, will keep everything great or make everything great, don't we look at them, at him, as our savior? This is not our home. And while it is important to be involved in politics, the gospel is not anti-political. Politics is part of the Christian life. But it is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what you love. It's a matter of where your home is. So yes, vote. Yes, be involved in politics. Yes, understand what's happening. But don't forget 
This is not your kingdom. You're just an immigrant here. You're just a resident alien, a citizen of another kingdom that is serving a role, yes, promoting the values of our true king, yes, being engaged and active, yes, but our heart belongs to another home. We should never feel comfortable here. We should never feel satisfied here, no matter who wins the election. Our joy should always be reluctant because our Savior is in heaven. We await our Savior who will come one day and He will, by His power, and His power is able to subject everything to Him, that's when our Savior will rule. That's when we will say, we're finally home. This is our home. This is our country. This is a city with foundations. This is where we really belong. So make sure as you are involved in politics, especially now, and I'm not saying anything you don't know, the church is dividing along political lines. That's the great danger of this time, of the turbulent election campaign, of course, of the pandemic, of the politicized culture of the day. But we as Christians, we cannot divide along political lines. We can't do it because our politics are heavenly. They're not earthly politics. We don't have to align ourselves with one camp or the other. We are a third people. We are a different culture. We practice heavenly politics. We live according to the heavenly culture, even in the culture of the earth. This is really important for us. As in before, you may have said that, well, the church is worldly because we are participating in the activities of the world and we're becoming lax in our moral, moral stance. And I think that's true now, too. But where I see the world really pushing in on the church is in the issue of politics and the kind of hopes we place in politicians and policies. Next question, what makes you happy? What makes you happy? The negative part of the second contrast is found in verse 19, where Paul says, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. And the positive is given in verse 21. When Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So on the one hand, we have those who have not stood firm, they have not persevered because they have made their belly their God. On the other hand, there's another group that has persevered, that is persevering, we're pressing on because we are hoping and we're trusting that one day our lowly body will be transformed. So we're not, we're not being controlled by our body now because we know it's, it's deficient, it's insufficient, it's not the right thing to control us. So we're waiting for that lowly body to be transformed when Jesus returns and makes us a glorious body like his own. So the question we are to consider here is what makes us happy. If our minds are set on earthly things, we might easily conclude that the highest happiness is the fulfillment of our physical desires. To eat well, to live in comfort, to be entertained, to experience sexual pleasure is the way to happiness. Eat, drink, be merry. Isn't that what life is about? Many people would say that. In fact, the term eat, drink, and be merry that is used negatively in the scriptures is often used positively in our culture today. 
the transformation of language, where we take something from a source, we use it differently, we forget the source altogether. Why is that? Because we live in a culture, and the church is susceptible to that, and Christians are always battling that, but we live in a culture that prioritizes the physical, sensual desires over the spiritual. Paul describes this lifestyle in a memorable phrase, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. He means that we can live under the rule of our physical, sensual appetites. Or to quote from another of Paul's letters, Romans 8, verse 5, we'll live according to the flesh. If in the first question we were concerned with the world, in the second question we are concerned with the flesh, another great enemy of the Christian. If we let our flesh be our God, if we let our flesh to determine our happiness, we cannot stand firm in the Lord. Now, earlier in the letter, Paul has warned us about the danger of legalism. Remember, he talked about those who place their righteousness and what they do and the rituals and the accomplishments that they have in their religion. That's one side. That's one problem. Those who are legalists who come in and say, you have to obey and do these things or God will not love you. He's dealt with that. Now he's turning the other side of the road, the other ditch on the other side of the road because you can fall off either way. The other side is lawlessness. It's the abuse of grace. It's the Christian teaching, the false Christian teaching that says, I'm already forgiven by God. Why does it matter how I live? Obedience doesn't matter. Holiness doesn't matter. I'm forgiven. It's by grace alone. Praise God that he loves me enough to forgive me of my past, present, and future sins. It doesn't matter how I live. And so these Christians submit themselves to the authority and the rule of the flesh. And they don't battle their flesh anymore. There are those who profess to be Christians and yet prioritize the desires of the flesh and not what the Lord commands regarding our life in the flesh. And so they drift. They fall away. They cannot stand firm. It's impossible to be ruled by your flesh and at the same time to be ruled by the Lord. And I found Jonathan Edwards' analogy of the role of our bodily desires very helpful. I used it several years ago, and if you remember, please forgive me, but if you don't remember it, this is a great way to understand how our flesh, our body, relates to the spirit and how we are to live our lives as Christians. Jonathan Edwards said that fire in the house is a very useful thing. When kept in its place, it provides warmth and light, which we need. But when fire takes over the whole house, when it has no boundaries, when it gets out of the fireplace and now takes over the whole house, it brings destruction. Edwards said, fire is a good servant, but a bad master. And so our body is a good thing. It is created by God and is designed to work in harmony with our spirit and with God's spirit. But when our physical, sensual appetites take over the whole of our person, they bring destruction. When our belly becomes our God, our master, our Lord, we can no longer live according to the Spirit, which is the essence of the Christian life, is walk according to the Spirit and step with the Spirit. Now, it's too easy to say that the body is evil and the Spirit is good, and 
Christians have erred in this way. There are different parts of Christian history where Christians have been very negative about the physical, about the body, and have to be corrected from Scripture. I think we're in a pretty good time right now, recognizing that the physical and the spiritual are just parts of who we are, both created by God, both good, both affected by sin. And yet, I think we've been looking at our bodies in a much more positive light than we should under sin. Now, if you're using the King James Version this morning, you will see that verse 21 is translated as Christ will change our vile body. Vile body. That's a translator's bias coming through. During that time, several centuries ago, it was just body, was just vile, it was evil. But that's not the biblical teaching. The right translation here is lowly, as we see in the ESV. Lowly, meaning the body is weak, but it's not wicked. The body is limited, it's humble, it's corruptible. It needs to be controlled by a better master. It itself cannot be a good master. You can't unleash the power of your body without any restrictions. It cannot be a good master, let alone God. When Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And in the fully restored creation, our bodies will not be sinful. We will have bodies. There will be glorious bodies. They will work exactly the way they're supposed to work. On the one hand, there will be no sickness. Right? Our bodies will be just perfectly healthy, perfectly whole. Whatever deficiencies we have now because of illness or disability or, or just age will be completely restored. And our bodies will be perfect. And many of us are looking forward to that day. Some of us, even my age, are starting to look forward to that day when our bodies will be right and perfect and work the way they're supposed to work. The problem is that now our bodies are sinful. And they're not functioning properly. And so we're waiting for the restoration. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, that our glorious body, that new resurrection body, will be a spiritual body. It's a very interesting way to put it. Clearly, in context, he doesn't mean that it'll be a non-material body. He talks about our bodies being like Christ's body. It'll be physical bodies in, in restored creation. In eternity, you'll be able to touch and feel and taste. You'll be able to touch another person. We'll have physical bodies as Christ showed us after the resurrection. However, Paul says there'll be a spiritual body. What does he mean by that? I think he means that our body, though physical, will be completely under control of the spirit. Meaning the harmony that was disrupted by sin will now be restored and our flesh, our physicality, will function properly, perfectly under the spiritual direction, as it's always supposed to do. So to live according to the flesh now is to make the body, the physical, the sensual, our master, our God. It's to prioritize physical desires over spiritual desires. It's to define happiness as satisfaction of our physical cravings and not as fulfillment of our spiritual longings. Now, do you see the difference? Galatians 5.16 tells us, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul says, 
if you live under the control of the Spirit, if the Spirit guides you, if the Spirit defines the boundaries of the use of your body, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. The flesh will not rule over you, but the Spirit will. But if you make the flesh your master, the Spirit cannot rule. John Chrysostom, the great Greek preacher, said, the flesh must follow, not lead. And it must receive the laws of the Spirit, not seek to control. Now, this is another great danger that can take us away from Christ. When we prioritize our flesh, we prioritize our bodily appetites, and we put no restrictions on them, no spiritual guidance for them. And so we simply do what our body wants to do. And if politics is the arena where Christians seem to struggle with worldliness the most today, I think, sexuality is the arena where Christians seem to struggle with the flesh the most. In a hedonistic culture, obsessed with self-expression, many Christians have given into the idea that their happiness lies in living according to their self-discovered and self-described sexual identity and fulfilling their sexual desires. Many Christians think that. Many Christians are changing their lives to pursue that kind of happiness. What does Scripture say about that? Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. We have seen many professing Christians fall away from Christ precisely because they have prioritized the flesh. I just saw online another example of a man who professes Christ, who had come out as a gay man several years ago, has adjusted his faith to accommodate his newly affirmed sexual desires and sexual identity. He says now that though he grew up evangelical and in circles that considered homosexuality to be sinful, now he's come to accept that it's okay, and now he believes in the affirming faith, affirming Christianity. But that's not where his transformation ended. Now, I want us to see the progression. It's really important to see where this goes once we start accepting our flesh as definitive. This is who I am. This is my identity. Fulfilling my desires is what happiness is. It leads to other decisions. So even after he had come out, even after he has affirmed that Christianity does not contradict his, his newfound desires and identity, he was still a married man with children. What do you do with that? And so very recently he's decided that he and his wife decided that they would divorce because he wants to live authentically as a gay man. He says his wife supports him in that. His children understand that. And when these things are posted online, they are perceived as courageous choices. And many people would comment on that and say, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud that you're choosing to be who you really are. And even though you had these constraints, now you can really pursue your true identity, your, your true self, because that is the only way to be happy after all. Even Christians support these kinds of decisions. But let me ask you this question. Wouldn't it be more courageous to say, I will 
not prioritize my desires over my commitment to my family. You see, he was choosing. Do I want to be a freely gay man or do I want to be a faithful husband to my wife and a present father for my children? I don't think it takes a lot of courage to choose to simply follow your flesh. That's easy. And many Christians do that. And it doesn't have to be about homosexuality. It doesn't have to be about anything that we consider to be wrong. You can do that with things that we consider to be right. Of saying, I will simply pursue my appetites. I will simply do what my flesh tells me to do. Because my belly is my God. And even if that means glorying in my shame, it's okay. Because that is the true way of happiness. This is absolutely what our culture believes. And this is what many in the church believe as well. Friends, this is so dangerous. The world is dangerous as it leads us to align with political agendas above our Christian agenda. The flesh is dangerous when it tells us to say, the spirit doesn't need to rule your flesh. The flesh can rule your spirit. We cannot stand firm. We cannot press on if we accept those terms. You see, I think we do pretty well in our conservative circles by defining what Scripture teaches about sexual ethics. I think many people in this church, if not everybody in this church, knows what's right and wrong, what's moral and what's immoral, because the Bible is frequently read and preached and taught. I don't think we've really wavered on that point of defining on what it is that's right, what God tells us, what is the right sexual ethics. I think we know that and we're defending that. However, we haven't looked beyond those tendencies. We need to reject this idea, not simply on the basis that the Bible says it's wrong. I mean, that's enough, but, but there's something else that's happening here. We need to redefine the terms. The reason people are going away from Christ in many ways is not because they've just been convinced that it's right. It's mostly because they've been convinced that what they feel is right. You see, what my flesh is telling me to do is right. Nobody can contradict me because my flesh is me and what my flesh tells me is me. And to be really me, I have to follow my flesh. That's the stuff we've got to fight against because we're losing people to that. Whether it comes out in sexual immorality or not, we're losing people because they are trusting their flesh and they're not giving in to the Spirit. Now, as a way of application, how do, we, how do we fight that? I want to call us to rebalance, rebalance the flesh and the spirit dynamic in your lives. That's the way to fight that. You will not persevere if you walk according to the flesh. So how do you resist the rule of the flesh? How do you not make your belly your God? I suggest a fierce commitment to the spiritual disciplines. A fierce, strong, intentional commitment to the spiritual disciplines. Because it is the disciplines of the Bible, the disciplines of the church, that actually constantly push, push our flesh back where it belongs. And if you don't have that, it's very difficult to oppose it. And there's no coincidence that those who leave the church, those who leave Christ, those who pursue immorality are not the same people who are reading their Bibles, who are praying consistently, who are attending church. Very often there's a correlation between the lack of the spiritual disciplines and the pursuit of the flesh. 
So I am calling you today, and myself as well, we're all prone to the same temptations, the same pressures of the flesh. So I'm calling all of us to a fierce commitment to the spiritual disciplines. Let regular daily prayer times keep your sleep in check. I would just sleep all the time if I could. I would. Because it's my flesh. My flesh tells me it's just nice. It's comfortable. It's warm. Why do I get up? Why does anybody get up? Because there's something more important. There's a goal. There's something that you say, my body needs to submit to this. What can be greater than getting up to pray to your God? And if you have that pattern in your life, and get up earlier than you need to, get up earlier than you want to, to keep your flesh in check and saying, my flesh is submitted to the Spirit. My spiritual longing is for God. And so I will get up and I will pray. I will be with my God. And so I keep my flesh in check. Let regular Bible reading keep your entertainment in check. I would watch Netflix all day. I'm confessing all these sins to you today. I would, I would do that because it takes no energy, it takes no imagination, it takes no work. I'm just, I'm just being filled with content. But there's another content, right? There's a different kind of engagement. And so if I read the Bible, if I say, I'm going to read this much Bible every day, I'm going to read it at this time, what am I saying? I'm saying all this other content has to be submitted to this content. I'm going to keep my flesh in check. Because I know where it leads. I know where it goes. I know I'm prone to sloth. And so unless I put these disciplines in place, my flesh will be unchecked. Let regular church attendance keep your hobbies in check. So many people live for the weekend. They have plans on the weekend. But for a Christian, we're saying this is the Lord's day. I'm with God's people on this day. I'm listening to God's word. I'm singing God's songs. Why? So that my hobbies don't, don't get away from me. So I don't start playing in every weekend somewhere else. You see, you, spiritual disciplines keep your flesh in check. Let regular fasting keep your eating in check. Don't let your body just dictate what to do. Put restrictions put limits. And for some of us, many of us, maybe all of us, these restrictions feel oppressive. And yet, they are life-giving because they are rebalancing what has been imbalanced in your life. Nobody who pursues their body unrestricted, unrestrained, is happy. I dare you to show me a person that is happy, that is just pursuing everything they want to do in their body, that leads to addiction, that leads to to people crashing, to nervous breakdowns. That's what happens. It has to be restrained. And God says, in my wisdom, I will give you structures, I will give you rules, I will give you discipline so that your flesh does not just rule you, doesn't become your God. And we say, thank you, God, for doing that because you know us well. And so we accept it. Sexual ethics is the same way. These are God's ways of restricting our physical desires, putting them in the right channels, putting them in the right perspective, and saying, if you do that, accept these restraints, you will see life. That is the way to true happiness. 
We are to live under the rule of Christ and let him rule our flesh. He says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But we must take up his burden and we must put on his yoke. Dane Ordland writes, and this is the book we're reading this summer as a church, Gentle and Lowly About the Heart of Christ. It's a wonderful book. Please read it. Dane Ordland writes that Christ's yoke is a yoke of kindness. His restrictions are kind. They're out of his love for us. He says, who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on a burden of a life preserver, only to hear him shout back, sputtering, no way, not me. This is hard enough, drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is the added burden of a life preserver around my body. Isn't that a fleshly Christian who says that? It's hard enough in this world. It's hard enough trying to fulfill all my desires. I don't need the burden of Christ's commandments. I don't need something weighing me down. I'm drowning as it is. And Christ says, my my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Put it on. Take it on and see what life really is. Would you do that? If you are a Christian who've been given into the flesh and considering happiness to be the fulfillment of your sensual physical desires, whether it's through food, through sex, through drinks, through entertainment, through comfort, whatever it is, would you take on his yoke and take on, take up his burden and see them as good things in your life? Now, really briefly, let me talk about our hope. The last question is, what is your hope? Those who have not persevered are called the enemies of the cross of Christ because they've opposed Christ and followed the world and the flesh. Their end is destruction, in verse 19. But what is our hope? What is the hope of those who are friends of the cross of Christ, who await a Savior from heaven? Our hope is that when He comes, He will transform our lowly body and make it like His glorious resurrected body, and we will never again be ruled by the flesh. There will be a time, friends, when you will just wake up when you're supposed to wake up and you will go about your day and you will feel no pressure to give in to your flesh and sleep more. There will be a time when you will eat exactly what you're supposed to eat and your body will be perfectly satisfied with what you've eaten. There will be times when there will be no sickness on your body where you won't have any strange desires coming out of your heart. That's our hope that when Jesus comes that will happen. When he comes, he will subject all things to himself and we will finally live in our true home, the restored creation under the Lord's rule. That's verse 21. And this world will never be a problem for us again. There will be a time when we will live perfectly under his rule, in his kingdom, knowing exactly what we're to do. There will be no opposition. There will be no confusion. There will be no competing parties. There will be no competing worldviews. We will perfectly fulfill our function in his kingdom. J.I. Packer, who recently passed away, went to glory and is experiencing these things now. He said, the essence of eternity as I conceive it, as it lies before me as my destination, is quite simply the joy of being with the Lord. That's our hope, the joy of being in the Lord forever. That that is what awaits us. 
So when we live now, we live in light of that. We live in anticipation of that. The world is passing away. The flesh will be destroyed. And finally, we will live the way we're supposed to live. There are two ways in this passage. And there are two destinations, of course. There always are two destinations. One way, the way of the flesh, the way of the world, and ultimately, the way of the devil. It leads to destruction. By the way, destruction here does not mean annihilation. The stoppage of all existence. No, it means ruin, loss, waste. It means living in ruin forever. It means living a lost life forever. It means living a wasted life forever. That is hell. Now the other way, the way of Christ's rule, the way of his kingdom, the way of perseverance, leads to eternal joy of living in harmony with ourselves, in harmony with God's creation, and ultimately in harmony with God himself. Which way is yours? Which way are you pursuing? Are you an enemy of the cross of Christ? Do you love this world more than you love the Lord? Is this your true home? Is your belly your God? Do you trust earthly saviors? Or are you a friend of the cross of Christ? Now here's what it means to be a friend of the cross of Christ. It means to believe that Jesus did on that cross something that changes your life now and forever. Now look at what 1 Peter 3 says about what Jesus did on that cross. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Similar themes, reiterated in a different way. Jesus died for our sins, died in the flesh for the sins of the flesh, died on the cross for the sins of the world. He is righteous and he did not deserve death, but he died in our place. And now we who are unrighteous, have life because of him. Are you a friend of the cross of Christ? Have you embraced its meaning? Have you embraced its news, its message? Have you believed God's word of the cross over the word of the world, over the word of the flesh, and the word of the devil? Listen to Charles Spurgeon. The flesh says, I will deceive. The world, I will defile. The devil I will destroy, but the Lord says I will defend. And that one word of God takes the sting from all the rest. The flesh is as a drawn sword, the world as a sharp spear, and Satan as a poisoned arrow. But the Lord God is a shield, and this baffles all. The flesh is much, the world is more, and Satan is most of all, but God is all in all. The flesh must die, the world must pass away, Satan must be overthrown, but the word of our God abides forever. And as the word of God is the life of the saints, they shall also abide world without end. When you are battling the flesh, when you are battling the world, when you are battling your great enemy, the devil, remember the word of the gospel. Remember what God declares to you on the cross and be a friend of the cross of Christ, not its enemy. Don't defy the cross by your actions, but embrace the cross by how you live. 
Paul applies this gospel in Galatians 6. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, If I believe in the cross, if I believe in the gospel, the world has been crucified to me, has no power over me. And in Galatians 5, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we believe the gospel, if we believe in the cross, if we are a friend of the cross of Christ, the flesh, the world, and the devil have lost their power over us. And you can stand firm until our Savior returns. Do you believe the message of the cross? Is your life conformed to the gospel? If you are a believer, just like me, we have a lot of thinking to do along these lines. We have a lot of changes to make, to conform, continuously conform our lives to the gospel. But if you're not a believer, I encourage you today to see Jesus for who he is, the Savior who died, the Savior who will return and will set this world right and will rebalance flesh and spirit and will defeat all our enemies so that one day this will all be right and we will be truly happy with him. Would you come to Jesus today and embrace him by faith? Let me pray and then dismiss us with a benediction. Father, we are so grateful that you give us the word of the gospel, the word of the cross. This is the ultimate defense from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. On the cross, we know you love us. On the cross, we know that you will keep us. On the cross, we know that power belongs to you. And that same power will one day subject all things to Christ, but even now in our lives, in our hearts, in our relationships, Things are being subjected to you now. So we pray for those who don't know Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you call their names? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you let them see that Christ's burden is light and his yoke is easy? That by accepting his gospel, we are putting a life preserver on our drowning bodies. Lord, I pray for those of us who are Christians that we would walk away convicted and encouraged to persevere, to press on, to stand firm in whatever temptations or opposition that we have in our lives. I pray that we will continue to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We would continue to live as citizens of heaven and not of this world. And we will continue to live as friends of the cross of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.